Good morning, church. Welcome to the third service of the morning. So glad that you're here. If we haven't met, my name is Bruce Garner. If you're here for the first time or the first time in a long time, welcome. We've prayed for you. We're very, very glad that you're here, as Pastor Jim has said. And this morning, if it's your first Sunday, it may be hard, especially for those of you who are newer, to understand the trepidation, the apprehension that I'm feeling as we begin this service and open this series. The reason is I'm going to talk about one of the most difficult things in the world. This week and for the next three Sundays, we're going to talk about suffering. And I feel a lot of trepidation about it, not because the Bible does not have much to teach us, But because every Sunday I get up here, I'm very conscious of my limitations, my own understanding of the Bible and my ability to explain it in a way that is truthful and understandable. But I'm especially feeling it this week because when we talk about human suffering, I have to tell you on the front side, I don't know much about it, and I don't want to learn one more thing about it either. Does that make sense to you? This is one area, I've got a curious mind, this is one area where every lesson I've already received feels more than sufficient. Whether it's physical suffering, emotional anguish, a mind you can't turn off, a body that won't stop hurting, any season, every painful season, I'd like to close the books and say, I've learned enough, I'm good to go, let's write a whole new chapter. Unfortunately, none of us get that privilege. And this Sunday, there will be hope in this sermon, but this may be hard to see it and believe it in the first part of this sermon. Because we have to talk, if we're going to talk about human suffering, on our way to addressing the very practical question that the series is entitled, Where is God When It Hurts? We have to talk about what's wrong with this world and what's wrong with us in the first place. Why is there so much suffering? And especially, what are we to do about it? You see, the Bible's plain teaching, which I'm going to show you in two interconnected parts of the Bible written centuries apart, is that we live in a fallen world. Sometimes that fallenness is brutally, painfully obvious. It screams to us from the video we're shown on our TV screens. The phone calls we get, the conversations we have with our doctors, sometimes the conversations in the heart of our own family reminds us that we live in a broken world, that people are sinful, that we're sinful, that there's physical pain and emotional anguish, that there is for many of us sometimes a feeling of real spiritual emptiness and barrenness where the prayers don't seem, as someone said, to reach past the ceiling of my room. What are we to do in those situations? Let me read with you, please, Romans chapter 8. If you'll open your Bibles there. Romans chapter 8. And on the front side, let me tell you that the goals of this sermon in the three weeks that follow, everyone that's preaching and sharing in this series... We absolutely want to be truthful, but we want to do some other things in addition to being truthful. I want you to perceive that not only are you hearing truth from God's Word, but you're hearing it from someone who is your fellow struggler in the school of suffering. 
not an expert. I'm still learning. I'm often disconcerted by suffering. I often feel like my prayers aren't making much difference. I've often asked myself same kinds of questions you ask yourself. This painful season that we're going through, how long is this going to go on? So I want you to hear, along with the truth, I want you to hear empathy and compassion as well. And I want the truth that you hear from Scripture, hopefully through a miracle of God, it will be timely as well. And when you think about it, with probably over a thousand people encountering this teaching between people in attendance and people online, it'll be a miracle of God if people can feel that a teaching that was given by one individual to so many different kinds of people in different seasons of life can be timely for all of them all at the same time. Only God can do that. I pray that He will. Because truth must be truthful. We must have the truth. But if we learn from Jesus and the apostles, truth is not only truthful. We're told specifically we are to speak the truth in, do you remember this? Speak to one another the truth in love. Because truth can remain truthful but be unlovingly communicated. It can be communicated without mercy, without compassion, without mutual understanding. If you've been in our church for a long time, you've heard this story, but I had an experience with that early in my marriage and early in my experience as a missionary. My family and I had moved to Chihuahua, Mexico, and after a ladies' gathering that I was helping um, to serve by being on the kind of the support staff, I walked out to the place where I'd parked my pickup truck in front of the church and discovered that my truck was gone. I don't know if you've ever had a truck stolen, a vehicle stolen. It's not a very pleasant experience. And it was kind of disconcerting for me because I'm the kind of person who routinely, uh, because of a wide variety probably of cognitive problems and learning abilities that haven't yet been fully identified by the professionals, whenever I'm parking my car, I'm barely thinking about parking my car. I'm thinking about what I'm going to do once I get out of my car. Does anybody else suffer from this problem? And what that means is I rely upon my wife to tell me where I parked the car. She wasn't with me on this occasion. So I went out to the hole where my truck should be and discovered an empty space and thought, well, you know, this is the Bruce Garner experience. I'm going to walk around the church and find it. And after about 15 minutes of walking, I'm finally coming to the realization that I don't want that the truck has actually been stolen. And that was kind of upsetting because now I've got to deal with the police and I've got to deal with insurance and I'm probably going to get ripped off by the insurance. But the worst part about it was we had just had our first son and his car seat and his blanket, which we called his whoopee, was inside the truck. And I don't know if you've ever had that kind of child. He cannot and will not sleep if this thing is not pressed to one of his cheeks. So I'm thinking, we're going to go through all this sleep-deprived for the next week or so while he adjusts to the new painful reality, and all of this is hitting me, and I must have had a pretty anguished expression on my face because a godly woman from the church who's just left the Bible study where she just had hopefully a life-changing encounter with the Word of God pulls up, rolls the window down, and asks the compassionate question, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm okay, but I think my truck was stolen. And she said, well, God's still on the throne, and drove off. (laughs) That's not what I'm trying to do to you this morning. That is true. It didn't strike me as empathetic. 
It wasn't timely. It wasn't particularly helpful because I never doubted it. I didn't envision Almighty God getting up off the throne and saying, well, the universe has spun out of my control. Garner got his truck stolen. I have failed him and the whole cosmos. No, I didn't, I didn't need that reminder. She thought I did. If at any point over these next few weeks we seem to be saying to you in a removed, uncompassionate distance, God's still on the throne, dry your tears, drive forward. That's not the intention. We're not going to look very deeply at Romans chapter 8, though we could, because it's a magnificent chapter. And if you had a single book of the Bible to take with you to that deserted place, that old game, right? If you could have a single book in the Bible to take with you to the deserted island, most people who know the Bible would probably take Romans. The reason for that is in 16 glorious chapters, it more than any other book, completely presents God, the world, sin, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It tells the entire story of the good news that God is and that God is bringing into the world. For the first seven chapters, Paul has labored to show that every human being, religious and irreligious, Jewish and Gentile, regardless of their belief in God or their non-belief in God, are all guilty before God. That every single person that God has made has sinned and failed Him and rebelled against Him, and then He begins to unfold the glorious good news expressed in verses like this, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When we come to Romans chapter 8, we're standing on a pinnacle of Scripture. God, Paul is going to explain that the love of God is absolutely indestructible and irresistible, that there's not one thing on earth in this world or the world to come that could separate us from His love, and His intention is to help people see how gloriously they actually have been saved. But my interest this morning is not to explain all of that to you. That would take probably the rest of the year, if not the rest of my life. But to show you something that is undertaught and underbelieved and underappreciated even by Christians. In Romans chapter 8, Paul is going to say that the glorious salvation of God is glorious precisely because it has entered a sin-wrecked world. And that God's ultimately sal ultimate salvation of people and restoration and renovation of the world He made is going to be spectacular, but the present world we live in is ruined. Look with me in Romans chapter 8, and I'm reading from verse 18. Paul said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us, the people God has saved, His sons and daughters. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Read verse 22 with me, please. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together 
in the pains of childbirth until now, Paul goes on to say. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, in other words, who have already experienced salvation, who have already received the Spirit that saved us, God has given Him to us as a first fruits, in other words, a blessing with the promise of more to come, a pledge of even greater love to be shown at a, di at a different time, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's the resurrection. For in this hope we were saved. For hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with what? Patience. In other words, it hasn't happened yet, but it will. Now that's deep and there's a lot there. Let me present to you the main idea from that little paragraph that helps us begin to get our arms around the painful subject of suffering, and that is this. What Paul is announcing is that the reality of sin has spoiled everything in this world. That the entire creation, everything God has made, including people he loved enough to send his son for, to die in their place, all of the cosmos around them, the entire universe, and even the people who are awaiting the fullness of their salvation, groan under the weight of living in this world, living under a sin-cursed, sin-wrecked, sin-stained, sin-spoiled world. You don't hear that very often, even in churches. It's undertaught. It's underbelieved. And in simple terms, most of us go through life thinking that sin is just not that serious. That it's so normal, so common, and so pervasive that rather than seeing how common and pervasive it is as evidence of its seriousness and its fatality, we think that it's normal. Even though we live under its effects and guard ourselves from the sin of other people every single day in our lives because we live in this world, the only world that we've ever known, I guess you could say our eyes have grown accustomed to the darkness. We've never seen the full bright glory of a sinless day where you meet no one who's selfish and every motive of your heart and theirs is pure and loving and self-sacrificial and well-intended, and everyone achieves the good intentions they have, that world doesn't exist. We know nothing of it. And the reason is this, the reality of sin has spoiled everything in this world. And my personal contention and the reason we're spending time on it on the first series, the first Sunday of the series is this, the pervasiveness and the destructiveness of sin may be, as I'm telling you, the least believed teaching in the whole Bible. When I was in Bible college, I, I had a few great teachers. Not many. Greatness is rare. Somebody's telling you they were all great. Probably not. Bell curves just don't work that way. But I had one professor who was brilliant. Some of you who have been in this church for a very long time will remember his name. He's long been with the Lord, but he was a rock-ribbed Scottish Calvinist, complete with the brogue, and his name was Ken Connolly, Dr. Ken Connolly. Brilliant. 
When Dr. Connolly taught the life of Christ, he would say things very naturally like, they took and crucified my Lord. And I always heard preachers say, the Lord, not my Lord. But when Connolly said it, you knew he meant it. You knew it was real. He was seeing in his mind's eye the death of Jesus in his place. Knowing that it was for Ken Connolly's sins that Jesus was dying. And you could watch the effect it had on him as he thought about it and taught you about it. Well, he told me something that turned out to be brilliant that I didn't really believe at the time. You see, up in my office, I've got probably half a dozen big, thick books. They're called Systematic Theologies. And what a systematic theology intends to do, the theologian who writes it literally reads the whole Bible and wants to put in an organized fashion, like a filing cabinet, organized by topic, everything the Bible teaches about basically everything it addresses. So you can look in chapters of your systematic theology book and discover through his vast knowledge and synthesis of what he found, what does the Bible say, for instance, about God? What does the Bible say about creation? What does the Bible say about human beings? What does the Bible say about marriage? What does the Bible say about sin? What does the Bible say about the future? And Every systematic theology that I've ever looked at has, if not as its very first chapter, very early in the book, systematic theologies talk about God, which makes sense. If it's a theology, which means just the knowledge of God, you've got to give God first place and talk about Him before you talk about lesser things. Connolly had this really strange and ultimately brilliant observation. He said, men... Get your theology of sin right. Start with the doctrine of sin. If you understand the doctrine of sin, everything else the Bible teaches will fall into place and make sense. And I thought to myself, the sweet old guy's just trying to be clever. That doesn't make any sense. I've got these books on my shelf that always speak about Scripture or God before they ever talk about sin. It didn't make any sense to me, but he was right. It took me years of reading the Bible and dealing with people and dealing with my own troubled heart to understand how right that is. If you understand the severity of sin, the death of Jesus is not only necessary but glorious. You understand that it's the only thing that could save you from sin. If you understand how common and fatal sin is, both are true at the same time, it gives you a lot more motivation to avoid it. And to confess it to God and to make things right with Him and with other people as soon as you find that, you, that you've fallen into it. What Romans chapter 8 in the section that I just read to you is describing is a world that has been so thoroughly wrecked by sin that it says that creation and believers waiting for Jesus collectively groan. Waiting expectantly, waiting eagerly, like, he says, and what a word picture, like a woman striving and straining to give birth. It's exceedingly painful, but it's very, very hopeful because it is earth-shattering pain, but it won't go on forever. This is why we're starting here. And the question that we have to address is, 
How badly is that destruction? Let me read to you the catastrophe that got us into this mess. Look in your Bibles with me, please, to Genesis chapter 3. If you'll turn in your Bibles with me, please, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. What I'm going to read to you now is known to Bible students as the fall. When we speak about living in a fallen world, this was the fall that took the world down and us in it. The setting is the Garden of Eden. The timing is Adam and Eve have each sinned for the first time. And we won't study this. I just want you to take in the scope of the catastrophe. And I want to invite you to study the Bible with me by, as I read, see if you can keep a mental count of all the things that were lost or destroyed because Adam and Eve sinned. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Did you see it? The first blame shifting in the universe. (laughs) Everything was fine until you walked in with her. (laughs) Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Here come the consequences, spiritual, relational, emotional, physical. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Here's the first prophetic picture of Jesus. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothes. If you want to do a five-minute Bible study after church, just read that carefully through again and notice all the different things that were lost, everything that was harmed, everything that was shattered because of man's rebellion. For the first time in his life, man heard the voice of his Creator and feared and hid from Him. For the first time in life, in a marriage, there was not harmony but blame-shifting and anger. 
work to that point evidently had been a joy without the kind of resistance and hostility and futility and failure that accompanies every kind of work we do on this earth. For the first time in the Bible, the reality of death is announced and the man who was lovingly shaped from the dirt will someday return to it. That's the world we live in. And it takes a thousand different manifestations from seemingly uncaused and utterly undeserved suffering that no one sought and that doesn't seem to be any particular person's fault, to the worst kind of cruelty that people do to one another, to inexplicable natural disasters that strike some down and spare others, to just the daily sand and the gear frustrations that life is hard, relationships are hard, nothing's easy, and as we say, it's always something. All of that, from the trivial and merely annoying to the genuinely heartbreaking, every single day of our lives, we live and serve and work and love in a fallen world. What are we to do about that? Let me give you now, in closing, three simple biblical ideas, take it as pastoral counsel, if you will, of how we can make the best of life in this sin-wrecked world. Number one... We can adjust our expectations. This might be the most important thing of all. I read to you Romans 8 and Genesis chapter 3, not to study those deeply, but just so that you'll see something that is undertaught in churches and underbelieved by Christians. That this present world that we live in is a hard world. That life is difficult for every single person, and the reason for that is sin has wrecked everything. And it may take the form of your own personal sin, your rebellion for God before God that leads you into very predictable and painful consequences, or it might be for no particular reason, nothing that can be explained, nothing that you did wrong, simply something difficult that has befallen you or your family that is part of your health, that is part of your mental makeup that brings you pain, that brings you anxiety and fear practically every day of your life, and you search in vain for something you did wrong, often you did not, you just live in a world that's wrecked. Life in a world like this is like trying to comb our hair in a dirty, broken mirror. You can still do it, but even as you try to do it, it takes a lot more work. You have to keep changing the angles, and you can tell that what was once perfect and well-suited to the task now is barely getting it done. The first thing that Christians need to do is take seriously the Bible's fatal announcement regarding sin and adjust our expectations. Here's what I mean. Our default setting in life is this, that pleasure is normal, and suffering almost always surprises us. Most people go through life expecting things to go well, expecting things to be easier than they actually turn out to be, and they are genuinely surprised by suffering and struggle. There's all kinds of things. This has been kind of a funny morning because, glad you came to the 11 o'clock service, at 8 a.m. we discovered something pretty remarkable. We have two heating systems in this church, both failed on Sunday morning. This was an icebox at 8 a.m., and people are looking at me like, why'd you forget to pay the light bill? What's going on? Seems like the church is doing okay. We can't have heat. No, not today. We can't. 
And it's proof of concept. And in the first service, as I explained that everything is wrong with the world and you can expect struggle and suffering, sometimes for no apparent reason, right in the middle of that, that back screen that I look at failed in the middle of my sermon and went completely blank. So I invited the entire congregation to look backward for the first time in my preaching career. I said, everybody look straight back. Here's more proof the world is just unpredictably difficult. It resists us. We fail and we struggle against it. And the default setting, if we're not very careful, and sometimes churches participate in this, because whether we're explicitly health and wealth teachers, like some of the hucksters on TV, or we're just not quite in tune with telling the story as the Bible tells it in its entirety, we condition people to this simple idea, if you do everything right, everything will be blessed. And it's just not so. Jesus said this, John 16, verse 33, in the world you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. You will have pressure. You will have crisis in this world. Jesus promised it. The truth of the Bible is not, the truth of life is not our default setting, but rather it is this. Suffering is normal, and blessings are a gift of God's grace. Because of the effect in the world, suffering is actually normal. And that's a hard thing to get a hold of and a hard thing to believe. And one of the culprits as everything that is going wrong with this world. It's fueled more and more. It's not the cause of everything that's wrong with the world, but it makes everything that's wrong in the world somehow worse. And that cause is social media. See, the default setting for people is to fake it. I bet at least half a dozen people have asked you this morning, how are you? What have you said? Mine. <laughs> and somebody told me, unprompted, between services, I always say, fine, the truth is I'm always in pain, but nobody wants to hear it. Wise woman. If she starts telling the reality of her physical life Sunday after Sunday, pretty soon people are going to pull back. We like to live in this illusion one of the great things about being a pastor is you get to spend all kinds of time with all kinds of people, and one of the joys of my life is I get to meet other pastors and missionaries, many of them senior pastors, godly men without exception, men who walked faithfully with the Lord. And I've noticed something. In all of those casual beginning friendships, when I first started connecting with that guy, because of what I could see about his ministry and his life and his marriage and his kids... I felt like a complete dope because I thought, now this guy's got it going. This guy's so blessed, and I'm a bit of a knucklehead, and I'm working on a hundred painful things behind the scenes. And getting to know every single one of those men and women, without exception, you know what I found out? You don't have to dig much further than half an inch into people's lives to discover that every single person is struggling with something. There's physical pain, there's emotional anguish that will not yield, there's trouble and pain with kids or with grandkids, there's trouble with the congregation, trouble with the city, problems with their health, all kinds of things. That's normal. 
Don't let the I'm fines and don't let the social media postings of unrelenting happiness fool you. Everybody is suffering. That's the way this world works. And blessings are a gift of God's grace. We need to calibrate our perceptions backward from the way they're normally set. James chapter 1 verse 17 explains it this way. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good thing you've experienced is a blessing from God who notice in spite of sin, in spite of suffering, He is always the same. He does not change and He gives blessings. We need to adjust our expectations. One of the most helpful guides I've had since I began studying for this series is an English preacher named Charles Spurgeon. And if you're not familiar with him, let me recommend to you anything and everything that great man ever wrote. He was absolutely, absolutely spectacular. He's known in the English-speaking world as the Prince of Preachers. And he's a good teacher regarding suffering because Spurgeon was not an ivory tower theologian when it came to suffering. He seems to have suffered simultaneously with three problems in addition to serious health problems that eventually took him to what seemed like an untimely death. Surgeon in gloomy London struggled with seasonal affective disorder. He struggled for much of his ministry with post-traumatic disorder because of a traumatic experience he went through and never fully recovered from. And he also seems to experience a great deal of what we would today call just good old clinical depression where the darkness would come and seize him for no particular reason and nothing he could explain. So he's a good teacher, not only from theology, but an experience. And Spurgeon wrote this, Mark then, Christian, Jesus does not suffer so as to exclude your suffering. He bears a cross, not that you may escape it, but that you may endure it. Christ exempts you from sin, but not from sorrow. Remember that and expect to suffer. That's what I'm telling you. Suffering is normal. Jesus will prepare you for it and he will take you through it, but you have to adjust your expectations. A second biblical thought is this. A second thing we can do after we adjust our expectations is we can work from our natural reactions toward more mature responses. When suffering engulfs somebody, the reactions are entirely predictable and very, very natural. It's kind of like resting your hand casually on a stove you didn't realize was scalding hot. Nobody has to coach you on what to do next. You'll pull back. You'll scream. Some of you may cuss. The prediction, the, the reactions are going to be entirely normal. That's to be expected, but you don't want to sit in those initial reactions. You want to hold on to the hand of God and move toward more godly responses, and He will enable you to get there. What do those reactions look like? They, are, they look like this, roughly in order. First, denial. Then, despair. Then, isolation. And finally, if you don't react better and move toward a more godly, mature response, you will build yourself a prison of resentment toward God and toward people. What does that look like? Well, first of all, you deny that this is happening at all. This doesn't, this isn't happening. This can't be happening. This can't happen to me. 
It really is happening. The pain, the people are making it clear to me. This is really happening. What do I do? I despair. Then, if you stay in that despair and don't start moving toward a more godly response, you isolate yourself. And the Bible warns that a person who isolates themselves seeks their own destruction. If you sit in that isolation long enough, you will begin to, to act and believe resentfully, first toward people and eventually toward God. What do godly responses look like? Sorrow and seeking and acceptance and trust. Those are the responses. First, sorrow. Let me talk to you about the godly response of sorrow. It's entirely natural, and this is the one response that can be very, very godly. Don't deny yourself and don't beat yourself up as spiritually immature if the pain and the suffering in your life bring you into deep sorrow. The Bible explicitly says that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You may remember in John chapter 11, Jesus went to the tomb of his friend Lazarus with his sisters beside them and the community gathered in grief around him. And there the shortest verse in the English Bible announces simply this, at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus wept. Now, was he pretending? Do you think the Son of God was putting on a show of deep emotion and sorrow that he did not actually feel? Is it a charade to make a point? No. He's really sorrowing. He is suffering in his humanity according to what he sees at that tomb. He knows quite well that he himself is going to speak and his dead beloved friend Lazarus is going to get his whole life back. Jesus who announced that he is the resurrection and the life is going to speak to Lazarus and say, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus is going to live again. That's going to happen in minutes after the Son of God shed his tears, but still Jesus wept. So do not deny yourself and others the entirely human response of sorrow and tears and heartbreak. Someone explained it to me like this, even if you know the story has a happy ending, it's okay to cry at the sad parts. The story has, as I'm about to show you, an exceedingly happy ending, but we're living in the sad part. Here's a little, little tip along the way for those of you who may want to, need rather to come alongside somebody in sorrow. For about 10 years, I've been volunteering as a police chaplain. I'm actually doing that for two agencies right now, and it's some of the best training I've ever had in my entire life. The first course I took was the best. The guy, had, the guy who did our training had more degrees than Fahrenheit, as a friend of mine likes to say. One of these guys who needs the other side of the business card to fit all the letters and qualifications in. He had a degree from the same seminary I graduated from in addition to a whole bunch of other things. And he looked at all these rookie chaplains and said, listen, you're all pastors, so when you get called to a crisis, because the bread and butter of the chaplaincy call is someone's life has been engulfed with so much pain, think about how bad it is for them. They want a stranger to come and see if he can help them. Family and friends may take longer to arrive. They need somebody they haven't even met, and they want him there right now. 
And he says, you guys are pastors, so you're going to walk into these crisis incidents with all this pain and loss and death, and because you're pastors, you're going to want to give answers. And he said, please don't do that. Not right then. Here's the deal. They're going to be in so much pain that they're not going to be able to remember anything you said anyway unless you say something stupid, and that they will never forget. And it's some of the best advice I've ever been given. And it's thoroughly biblical because the Bible says, weep with those who weep. Be timely, be compassionate, be present. That's sorrow. From sorrow, the next godly response is not to sit there forever, but begin to seek God in it. You may not get the answers you want. You may not get the explanation, Job didn't, of why all of this has befallen you, but you seek him. And both Spurgeon and Martin Luther, perhaps Spurgeon depending upon Luther, both said that the best book in their library as ministers was a book marked Suffering. It taught them more, Spurgeon said, than all the blessings they had received. From seeking God, godly people who mature and learn through their pain eventually move on to acceptance. And from that comes a greater trust in God than perhaps they've ever known. Here's how J.I. Packer, one of my favorite theologians, explains it. Speaking of pain, he says, if you ask, why is this happening, no light may come. But if you ask, how am I to glorify God now? There will always be an answer. That's what we want. We want to move from reactions to mature responses. And finally, number three, Romans 8 announces that we can wait with growing eagerness for God to make all things right. Verse 24 in Romans 8, in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Christ, we're told in Hebrews, endured the cross despising the shame because he saw the glory that was set ahead of him. Paul said explicitly in the passage that we've been reading, I'd like you to look at it again. Look again at verse 18, the first verse we read. In fact, read it with me, Romans 8, 18. What's the Bible say? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Notice that. Paul didn't say it's not real. He didn't say like some religions teach that pain is merely an illusion. He didn't deny its reality. It's quite real, it's quite painful, and it's even deadly. What Paul says is the suffering that we're in now is quite real, so much so that the whole universe groans waiting for things to be made right. Here's what's true about that painful reality. It's not worth comparing to the glory that is coming. See, I quoted Jesus, and I didn't quote him incorrectly, but I did quote him incompletely. And if you take anything out of context, you can change the actual truth that is being communicated. Look at John 16, verse 33 again. Jesus said, in fact, read it with me. Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The last sentence makes all the difference. Jesus told us of coming trouble not to terrify us, but so that we would have peace, so that we wouldn't be surprised by suffering. 
And he gave us this assurance, though you will suffer, you can take heart, you can be encouraged, and he speaks of it in the past tense, I have overcome the world. I showed you the catastrophe. Let me show you in closing the renewal. Would you look at the very end of your Bible, Revelation 21? Revelation 21, verse 1. This is history. It's just future history. It's a day that is as certain as yesterday, but it is still in some future day that we have not yet lived through. Revelation 21, verse 1 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Listen, if you're following Christ, if you've trusted Christ, this is your future. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life. What's it say? Without payment. In other words, salvation, renewal, restoration are free. What am I trying to share with you? That we live in a sin-wrecked world and the best way to make our way through it is to realize and to adjust our expectations accordingly. To sorrow as much as we need to when pain comes upon us, but to improve our reactions by moving them toward godly responses while we wait for God to make everything new and right Because the Bible's simple message regarding sin is this, suffering is a certainty because of sin, but the sufficiency of Jesus is greater still. That's our hope. That's where we're headed. That's what's going to keep our heart close and safe to God who has promised to go with us and go with it through us until He finally, as we've been singing today, takes us home. Let's pray together. If you don't have, friend, the certainty of your salvation, if you've been hearing this good news but you're not sure it's a real thing in your life, if you still have an I hope so kind of thinking regarding God and eternal life, can I just invite you to trust Jesus? Tell Him you're sorry for your sin. Ask Him to forgive you. Sin and its consequences are quite real to all of us if we'll just shake off the social lies and sit quiet with the reality. Suffering is real. Death is real. Jesus is greater. God will someday wipe away every tear. No more pain. No more suffering. He'll make all things new. And he announces it as something that had already been accomplished. If you trust Him, He'll save you. He'll forgive you. He'll put your feet on a new path.
Christian, if you're suffering, this is your Savior. This is who loves you. This is who is going to guide you. This is who will be with you, he promised, every day to the end of the age.